There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast contains explicit language. I had hoped to be able to continue the work that the citizens of my district elected me to do. Unfortunately, the distraction that I have created has made that impossible. So today I am announcing my resignation from Congress. Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And that, dear listener, as you probably guessed, that that was Anthony Weiner saying goodbye to a life in Congress. It was 2011, and Weiner was bowing out under the weight of his scandal involving sexually explicit tweets. Yeah, it was a pretty inglorious way to go, and perhaps a bit historic. You know, Anthony Weiner had just become, at least we think, the first Twitter casualty in the history of the U.S. Congress. What you can't tell, Sam, from just listening to the audio is the haunted expression on Wiener's face and the realization that his career plans had probably gone up in smoke. Yeah, this seemed like an honest and very real end to a career in politics. You just didn't think he was ever going to make a comeback or end up back in in the limelight as a politician. Except that wasn't the case. You know, despite becoming fodder for the late-night comedy circuit, Wiener wasn't done. Less than two years later, in fact, he's running for one of the toughest jobs in all of government, mayor of New York City. And this episode of Canada Confessional isn't just about that race or that scandal. No, not at all. It's about redemption. And more than anything else, it's about the inability to quit the thing you love, even when it becomes the source of daily humiliation. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. (laughs) Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. So um, we wanted to begin, I, I, I was sort of curious as to where you first got your love of politics. I, I don't know. I, you know, there's mythology around the house, the Wiener household, that like I was an argumentative kid and that we would always debate things at the kitchen table. I think that's kind of like after action bullshit. I think, it, I, but, <laughs> but all that being said, I did run... In the third grade for class vice president, me and Sean Gillier ran against James James Noonan and Eddie Rodriguez. And I had this 
really great speech that I had prepared because I, I realized the unifying theory of PS39 was that we all thought there was too much – um, too much reliance on fish sticks yes. in, the ca- in, the, in the cafeteria, and like I thought that was so. I not only did I have a speech to try to do away with fish sticks or limit it, that I memorized the speech, and I remember I memorized it by going around the block in Park Slope where we lived, and like at a different point on the block, it would remind me of a different part of my my speech, and so <clears throat> so I thought I'd give a really good speech and then I think I can't remember it was James I think it was James Noonan he he gave this lousy speech in rebuttal um and but what he did <laughs> is, do you know those those lollipops you guys might be too young they used to have lollipops that came in a long strip that yeah. they were attached yeah. right and you tear them off so he pulls out of his backpack this long strip of lollipops and ceremoniously takes each one off and puts it on each kid's desk and I my he was buying like, votes. Wow. Dude, it was like campaign finance reform was born <laughs> that day. But I don't know. Like I, I guess I was in student government in, in college. I ran for student senate, lost, came in 13th or something like that. And then some kid didn't come back. So I lobbied the senate to appoint me for the vacancy. I don't know how exactly happened, but I was like really active in like student government. But why? Why? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I, I like the idea – of being the guy to like, if I had ideas on how to fix stuff, it didn't it didn't make it didn't seem natural to me to call someone else to do it. I kind of had this psychology of like doing it myself. I'm not sure why. I mean, you know, growing up a middle class kid in Brooklyn, maybe you have this notion of involvement. I'm not really sure. It it, it, it I don't. I mean, it, it turned out it might have just been. It's like one of these. It might have just been that I was attracted to it because I was good at it. How did you know you were good at it? Well, I mean. I almost got elected with you know slogans like "Vote for Wiener, he'll be Frank," and <laughs> "Vote for Wiener, he's on a roll," and uh, embracing the the name. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> uh, I'll relish it. That kind of, and I, I guess I like we had, like in the college like we had this model assembly forensics competition mm. that I was like recruited to go do, and I like. One speaker and majority leader and best bill. Like I just kind of felt like I liked it, and I also liked the study of politics. Um, I don't know. It's like anything else. You kind of you, you pick it up in college, and it turns out you're good at it, and then it turns out that there is a career path. Um, I didn't know at the time when I went. To, I went to Washington to work for my predecessor, Chuck Schumer, and just to be an intern. And I, I remember he keeps to this day the letter I wrote because I misspelled his name. I'm like such a <laughs> What'd you do? <laughs> drop the C? Yeah, I'm yeah. like so. You're so lazy. You can't even like muster a good spelling of the name. But as it turned out, I was like this insane super intern. Like the, back then, like if you got mail, it was then it was mail. It was an email. If your your job was to open the mail, and a lot of mail that comes to a con- congressman's office is not for them. It's for another office. Like someone in Mississippi writes 435 letters to all the members of Congress. Something and so. You had to refer that mail. It was the worst job an intern could have because you got to look up who their congressman is and then address it and then send it. But I, I made a thing of like memorizing all like as many towns and as many members of Congress as, uh, and and so I was like, you know, like that kind of an intern. And like on, on C-SPAN, we had this game <laughs> that when a person got up to speak, there's a three or four second period before the guy puts in what the guy's name is and it pops up on the screen. And I was usually able to beat the three or four wow. as an intern. 
So I'm like, I'm loving this. And like, you know, I had no business being there. Like all these Harvard kids were there and everything. And then it was me. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. But it wasn't until later that I thought about running myself. So at what point did you know that you wanted to actually run for Congress? Well, there, there was a, it wasn't like a moment of epiphany, but being there for a while, you realize a couple of things about Washington. One is a relatively small number of members of Congress run the place, mm-hmm. whether it be the committee chairman or the guys who really make it their job. I mean, a lot of members of Congress, you know, they've reached the peak of their career. Being a member of Congress is plenty fine. They're not ambitious to do a heck of a lot more. They're not senior enough to really have much impact. And so when you take that formulation and you look at that group of people as relatively small, you realize if you wanted to, if you wanted – that if you were able to get there, you're pretty close to – you know, you're in a really good place to really do a lot of things. And also I I had the – at the opposite end of that, I also saw there were a lot of guys there that I thought, I'm better than this guy. You know, I can do it as well as this. You know, I think that I understand stuff better than this Yahoo who's arguing on the floor right now. On the now. flip side of that, a lot of your colleagues looked at you and said, oh, this is a guy with, you know, you know a place to go. He's moving very fast. And it, it sent you sensed almost a resentment for your ability to get in front of the camera, to dominate a news cycle. It felt like people looked at you well, in no, an odd way. Look, it, we're in a very weird time in our American civic life in that the institution of Congress has changed dramatically from when I was there just a, you know just a half a generation ago. It's like then you had a you had to put in some time, become an expert on stuff, work your way through the chain of command, and it valued expertise. You had guys there who represented agriculture interests. You had guys there who represented you know, the Judiciary Committee who were experts in immigration law. But you didn't have guys who were just good on TV. Yeah. I mean, you had guys who, who could be. I mean, Chuck Schumer, Howard Berman, these types of people. So by the time I got there, having watched it, I, I, it has become clear that today there are shortcuts to influence. You vote yes if you believe yes. You vote in favor of something you believe it's the right thing. If you believe it's the wrong thing, you vote no. We are following a procedure. I will not yield to the gentleman, and the gentleman will observe regular order. The gentleman will observe regular order. You just don't – there's no point in waiting around 20 years in Congress since Congress doesn't do anything. So if you really want to advance a cause, one of the ways to do it is to to get up in the morning and figure out how I'm going to get on HuffPo Live. Well, hey, (laughs) we'll edit that part out, okay? Yeah, let's cut that. So – Let's skip forward a little bit. You're, you you have this career in Congress and then obviously it doesn't end ideally. Um, when you left Congress in June 2011, um, did you miss the action? Did you miss being around that community? Well, it, it, it's not really fair to jump so quickly ahead. Look, I had done it for a while. I mean I was, I was elected in 1998, so I started serving in 1999, been through the change that we finally won the majority and then lost it again. And I ran for mayor in 2005 mm-hmm. and almost won. I mean, I, you know, I, mean I, I made the runoff and you could argue that the math wasn't terrible. Well, you know, that I, I chose not to contest it. I think that was a smart thing to do. I far exceeded my expectations and everyone else's expectations. And then in, in, in 2009, when there was going to be a mayoral race in New York City again, I was leading in the polls and was in a pretty good place to get elected mayor in 2009. When the mayor conspired with the newspapers here and the and the city council and overturned the term limits law, so so I was ready to go on a couple of occasions. Yeah, and um, so so you no, know, I mean, I I by the time that I had left, and obviously not on my own terms, but the time that I had left, 
Congress was not a great job anymore. You're very politically active, obviously, and you care deeply about this stuff. And right. I, my question was, did you miss being in the mix? Uh, on only uh, on the rarest of occasions, um, Hurricane Sandy struck my district very hard shortly after I left. Yeah. It was hard not to be there for the people that I cared so much about. And like it was hard to watch. You know, it was just hard to watch. It was it was it was hard to because I wanted to be helpful. And unlike the stuff that goes on in Washington, the nuts and bolts of community service of rolling up your sleeves and trying to help people. That was a moment that that cried out. I mean, there might have been one other instance. You know, there was. Some, there was some outrageous behavior on the part of some of my colleagues directed at my wife that I think probably would have happened if I was literally sitting in the room with them. But no, it's not there, – there haven't been – there are not a lot of moments where I've kind of stared at C-SPAN 3 at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, damn, I wish I was there to raise this point of order. Described in a New York Times, New York Magazine article that you felt like you were in a movie uh, after being uh, after leaving Congress, and that you had this kind of self awareness that you know there was a moral arc to your story, that there was the possibility of a redemptive chapter. Did you feel self aware of that, or did you feel in what way was it like a movie? In that it's these kind of tumultuous forces going circulating around me, like kind of like I was in the middle of this press tsunami that is something that you you can't visualize as a normal human being until you're in the middle of it until you're in until you have you know 30 TV cameras outside your door to take a picture of you taking your laundry in you don't it's just hard to it's it's hard I mean it was like a weird phenomenon I mean at the point of my scandal like it was I don't know that year I had been googled more than Jesus Christ or something like crazy it was just crazy now in terms of like how I mean, people say stuff to you all the time, like, is there, you know, people come back or don't worry, you bounce back. But I don't I don't remember what the context was that I said that, but there was this slightly surreal kind of sensibility to the whole thing. You know, you're kind of like watching yourself in the middle of a national movie is no other way to put it because it kind of had this weird unreality to it. Congressman Anthony Weiner. Weiner to resign. Congressman Weiner apologizing. Growing pressure for him to resign. A story that began with a lot of jokes finally brought the New York congressman to tears. The headspace that I was in was I had done something very embarrassing to myself. Then I had a wife that I, I, had, I had essentially, you know, dishonored. And how do I deal with it? <laughs> so it's not like, oh, my goodness, this is so unfair. It's yeah. like, what a shit show I've got on my hands. Like, what am I doing? Like, and every moment <laughs> and every moment of just trying to figure out, you know, like, it's, it's not like this, this, this moment, these moments are like, you know, boy, this is so unfair. It's like, I'm like, you, I don't even know what I was feeling. I mean, to, you know, to some degree being a soulless, empty vessel that I am came in handy at that moment. <laughs> so walk us through, uh, You, I mean, walk us through as you d- make the decision, you make the mental turn that you want to actually get back into elect- elective politics. How did that progress? I don't know if it was, uh, to some degree, it was more continuum than you might imagine. I mean, for years I had been thinking about running for mayor. Yeah. I mean, really going back to 2004, I ran in 2005, 
was going to do it again in 2009. So 2013 was always been the way I was supposed to do it. I had raised about five million bucks to do it. Um, so to some degree, it was a, it was based on this, the sheer math of the calendar that if I didn't run in 2013, that's kind of it. There was a notion that the things I cared about and the things I believed still existed. In fact, the, the first kind of step in my process of kind of thinking about this is that I had this kind of thematic book of ideas that I had started that I kind of had jotted on pieces of paper throughout my entire career and that I had always wanted to put together and I started to do them and came up with this idea book of, you know, 60 and then 100 something ideas for New York City and like this kind of manifesto type thing. I thought about the middle class and what we needed to do in New York City and in cities like it. So I think it started with like, oh my God, I've got all these ideas. What am I going to do with them? This is the thing I wanted to do always. And, you know, so it wasn't that much of a departure. The only, you know, the the only question was, is, you know, could it be done? You know, could I do it? Who would you talk to beforehand what? to get advice? Um, not a lot of people because uh, – well, not a lot of people. I mean, I took a handful of people about, you know, how to answer some of the big questions, but – not a lot of people. I mean, I didn't want to create a maelstrom around it before it was kind of done. And I mean, my wife first and foremost, and um, you know, considered running for different offices. Like maybe I should do this a different way. You know, but uh, why did you not? Why did you end up not running for a different office? Because I, 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 I was most interested in running for controller, and but in a head-to-head, I knew I couldn't win. I mean, just as a, as a sheer politic, and I turned out, I mean, I think Elliot Spitzer proved me to be correct. In a, and I might have, and I still think I would have had a very difficult time in a runoff, even if I stayed in and the math worked here. When you're in a five-way race, having 40% negatives is not, a dis, is not disqualifying. You know, Donald you know, Trump will attest. Donald Trump will attest. Did, so, you, did you consult with Schumer? No. Because uh, for, for, I, I, you know, I didn't, none of my fellow politicians would I want to put into that position. I knew what was, I knew it was going to be disruptive. I knew it was going to be a big deal, and I knew that people were going to get asked that question. And so, out of concern about kind of protecting them, um, I didn't do. I, I I think one of the things that I learned that I learned from my my thing was I didn't want to put people in the position of having to answer for me again. Did anybody that you were talking to about running for mayor say to you, "Don't run"? Did anyone say, "Don't do it"? Um, I don't recall. That I think people might have said, "Here's what may or may not happen." But in fairness, I wasn't terribly on it. I don't. I think that many of them were surprised. Like I think I had also not been completely honest with them. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that there were people saying, "Look, and this is what do you need this for? You're you seem like you're doing okay." Uh, but by and large, I think that that people on people I think anticipate, you know, the smart people around me kind of anticipate that we've done some research, we did focus groups, we did polling. I didn't go into this on a lark, you know, um, and there was reason to be concerned about whether it would work, but also reason to be optimistic that it might. What did the focus groups tell you? As it turned out, not a great deal. It turned out that my experience, people looked at it in very, very different ways. I mean, there were people who were could never see themselves supporting me again because of it. And there were people who were in those focus groups who were outraged that they were even having the conversation, that this is not something we should be talking about because it doesn't matter to what kind of a mayor he would be. 
There were people who thought that I was hounded out of office unfairly, and there were people that thought that I got it easy because, you know, they, whatever. There were people who had no idea what it was. They just knew this tumult was around me. People have, because of their perspective, absolute certainty about what you should do. So, like, people say, you know what you should do? You should go on your friend John Stewart show and just laugh it off. And then someone will come up to me and said, you know what you should do? You should give this apology and you should start a support group for people that do these horrible things. Or someone should say, you know, you should go away to a camp and get your head examined. And some people would say, you know, you should get back out there and act like nothing. And all of that sense of confidence that they know is because of their own perspective about what I did. I still get it. I still get it today. You know, and it's it's not very instructive, to be honest with you. So you jump into the race and then things start going pretty damn well. I mean, you rise in the polls. You actually are the front runner. And was there a point in time where it dawned on you that you actually might win this thing? Well, I'm, a, I'm smart. And, and <laughs> I'm smart. And so I, I always realized, I mean, the polling was good. Our polling was good. And I realized that I was running against a weak field, which yeah. was another reason I ran for, you know, that I wouldn't have run if I thought there was a really great mayor in, in the group, although I'm a big supporter of de Blasio and think he's doing a good job. Um, but I, I read polls better than people than than reporters do and headline writers do. I know being a 26 percent front runner is not anything to like, you know, go to town on. And I and I knew that. And I knew that underneath the numbers, uh, underneath the numbers was were, were reasons to be concerned. Um, and I and I, you know, I probably also knew that there was, as I said repeatedly to reporters when I got in the race, there's stuff that was out there and that when someone put it on the air, it was going to be bad. Well, there's two questions on that. Uh, one is, the first one that I have is, was it therapeutic or in any way to be back in the game? Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I am, I mean, I don't know how many, how many people you're going to have on this podcast. I'm probably the best campaign politician you'll ever interview. I mean, I'm like perfectly evolved. I'm like the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator of like I love it. <laughs> I mean, I love doing it. I'm really good at it. I like the issue debating with people. I like this this talking to people. I like the joking. I like the jousting with reporters. I just love that stuff, and I think I'm very good at it. And it's the reason that I got elected to stuff against people who had more money, against people yeah. who were in better position politically. I'm just really good at it, and I take great joy in it. As a matter of fact. The, the hollowing, emptying, dispiriting part of politics is when it's the Washington side. A lot of people like misunderstand like, oh, my God, I'm going to go to Washington and make laws. That's going to be the fun part. For me, the fun part was getting on the plane and going home and seeing Mrs. Crapalucci on Avenue P and having her complain to me about how expensive kosher meat is. And like, yeah. well, Crapalucci wouldn't be arguing about kosher meat, but all that, you get the idea. <laughs> so, Crapalucci yeah. wits. So, yeah, I was like, I, I mean, I was a different person because I had this these wounds that I was bearing. But... But being out there and, – and there's another thing about this is that I, I love New York and I love the people. And like there was not a moment that I'm out that I'm not like li- liking the experience because I just have such – I take such joy in, in But, in but, the, but the was it therapeutic in another way in that because <clears throat> you had these wounds and now they you, – you were now confronting them publicly and with people and it, in a way that you hadn't done before? Um, don't – no, that's not true because every day – of my life at that point, whether I was in politics or not, yeah. people were stopping me on the street and wanting to engage me about it. So you had already done that. Yeah, it happened every day. I mean, you don't like sitting on a subway train or walking down the street, and I haven't like lived in this 
kind of, you know, hermetic seal or in the, you know, curled up in a corner somewhere. I've been living my life in New York City. So the interchange of people saying, I mean, it's a real Roy Satch test. You know, people are like, oh, my God, you got such a raw deal. Oh, my God, you let me down. Or how are you doing? You yeah. know, are you surviving? Why are you outdoors? You know, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> so that kind of crazy shit was going on for a while. So there was a little bit of that. If anything, it was the other side of it. The, the people, there was a huge disconnect between what reporters wanted to talk to me about, what citizens wanted. Yeah. For citizens, this was a mayoral campaign. This was an important thing for them. For reporters, this was this redemption arc. This was this sure. narrative. This was this thing and you know, everything else. And so being out there among the people would actually be a pleasant. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Relief to be talking about the Social Security cost of living adjustment or talking about, you know, recovery from Sandy and stuff like well, that. Well, as a reporter, I'm going to just do exactly what you accused us of doing. You, you talked about how the fact that there was... These, you mentioned in early on there's going to be other texts that were out there, and you were running anyway. Was there a high wire act element to what you were doing that gave you kind of a rush at all? No. You, no. No, there was a little bit of a, of a, of an, a perpetual anxiety that this thing – I mean, I, you know, it's kind of like PTSD. Like I knew behind any headline could be this hammer that could come down on me and whatever. I mean, I kind of had that sense. The last place I campaigned in 2005 was at the 125th Street stop on the 4-5. And up in, so I was kind of like, all right, that's where I'm going to start the day that I go and announce and come back out. And I remember there was, you know, 30 TV cameras surrounding me in a semicircle. And the idea when you work a subway is you greet people as they're getting onto the subway. And literally people had to squeeze between Malaysian TV and, you know, Inside Edition <laughs> to come say hello. And I remember this kind of feeling of, uh, like when I'm describing this phalanx of cameras and then, whoa, here's a voter. And I'd be like, yeah, like, so like those moments it instantly felt comfortable and felt at ease. It's what I love. It's what I, I mean, I love, I love doing it and I love seeing people and hearing what they have to say. Even if they were coming up to me and giving me a hard time about my thing, even then there was a sense of like, okay, this is real. This is the way it's supposed to be. You know, it's like, People throwing stuff at me during Obamacare. You know, like, I felt this is like what you're supposed to be doing. How do you stand there and present yourself? And I know this is going to sound a little crass, sir, but how do you present yourself to people on a public stage? I'm wondering if you felt at all you were a little bit rusty, just on those sort of nuts and bolts of yes. the campaign. 
what what do you think you were nuts um, rusty about? Oh, you mean what issues? I just yeah. uh, I I was surprised and unprepared, relatively speaking, for the for how what dissatisfaction there was in communities of color about the police violence um, and stop and frisk and those type of things. Things that if I had been out there touching people for for you know more time, I would have kind of understood a little bit better. As it turned out, I think I handled the issue better than my opponents did, and I understood it, and I came to the solutions faster. Um, so things like that, just like kind of like the rhythm of the issues is what you lose a little bit of a touch on. Um, but uh, but that was not a problem. I mean, I was not. I mean, this was not a, a, a field of, you know, of LBJ, John Kennedy, and Abe Lincoln I was running against. But then the hammer did ultimately drop. Reporters ask questions. You have a question? Yes. The, yeah, yes. I will confirm that that did happen. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the news come to you when it broke, and what was your immediate decision about how to handle it? Well, uh, I got an email late at night from Ben Smith at BuzzFeed with a link to some website where... I believe it's called The Dirty. Okay, where someone, where the stuff had been posted and and um, I, I did not, I, I think I emailed some of them, one of my, advi- you know, one of my principal advisors says, take a look at this. This is this is me, and it's real. We have to figure out what to do with it. Now, I had kind of had this ethos about this that one thing I could not do anymore is is be dishonest about this stuff, and so I was just going to say whatever it is. What I did not realize fully at that moment was that the way I had spoken about this up to then, that more stuff is going to come out, was not satisfactory to the people that I had spoken to in that they had this line that I didn't have in my mind of did it happen again after a per, per certain date and I didn't say that specifically so reporters were unsatisfied and 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 I didn't have that in front of me at that moment. It became clear soon. Um, but I basically emailed someone and said, so we're just going to be honest about it but I knew it was, I mean, I obviously knew it was bad. I said, this is it, here it is. Let's see, now we're going to see if, you know how how much this stuff is going to stick were you i mean why do you think you you misunderstood sort of where the media was in terms of that line that they were drawing i think they were thinking of that this stuff ended after before you resigned why do you think i got it wrong i don't know i mean i if you go back and look i did a round of interviews with local news reporters when i got in and uh, i mean every one of them i thought i'd not left pretty substantial breadcrumbs about, I basically said, you know, that more stuff is going to come out. It's more than just these people. I did my best to give kind of a count of who it was, you know, what it was. I made a decision in my mind. If something comes out, I wasn't going to, I did no point, even though the, this person that came out said a lot of things that weren't true and had a lot of things attributed to me that were not true and said a lot of different things, that I wasn't going to litigate that. I thought that I had said it. Now, why didn't I understand it? I don't know. Maybe it's because when you're involved with this process of doing something, trying to figure out how to get it behind you and understand it and everything else, you're not thinking about, well, this date it happened on before this date or it didn't happen. You know, I recognize now why. Um, I happen to think it's not nearly as important as what the reporters 
and everyone made it out to be when they had new pictures or new text or something. But yeah. I think it was always going to be a shitstorm. Um, and I think that the reporters made it a little bit more about that than it should have been. But I also agree fundamentally that I should have been as specific as possible. But be mindful of something else. I've always made it a, I made it a point throughout this thing that the other people involved in this stuff that I was having these communications with, that I was not going to be in the process of revealing stuff. That if someone wanted to dump stuff on me, that's the price I paid for being a public person, but I wasn't going to. And so I was mindful of this idea of giving a general sense of what I did with as much specificity I think to kind of get tell the story as I could, and I did it wrong. I freely admit that I, that I did it wrong, but, at least in the eyes of reporters. But you were kind of stuck because, it's right, you couldn't just give the reporters, like, here's all the stuff I did. Of course. Because yeah. that would be outing. Yeah, I wasn't going to do that, and I didn't think that was a reasonable way to proceed. I thought there were some questions I could try to unpack, like, you know, how many. Like, even, like, even like someone else who sent it to someone else and then it's, you know, even I think about what a number, like, well, I had five people, but here's, we, we found seven. Or I knew immediately there would be, like, this countdown, how we yeah. haven't found number four or whatever it is. So I'm trying to walk this line of giving the information that I thought was needed, which is I did these things in my personal life. I got in trouble for doing them. Here's what I want to do as mayor. You you talked about some surreal experiences uh, when you left Congress, but it did seem like the the press conference after this came out was one of the more surreal ones. No, well, yes and no. I mean, we're in the context of a campaign. This has been kind of looming to some degree. Um, I, I mean, we're trying to say there weren't a list of seventeen different options of what to do. Right? I could not. What I had been doing on the campaign up until then was every day had this idea book. Every day I was rolling out another idea, talking about it, and if people wanted to ask me after we talked about that idea, they'd have to come out, you know, if I was doing a thing about employment programs, they'd have to come to the press conference and ask me after. I could not realistically do it at that that way now. I had to confront this thing. In the early days of the campaign, people were pressing me for, is there more out there? And I said, yes. I, I, said, that, I said that there was, and so, so to some degree, this was something that we had in front of us, as Huma just acknowledged, that we, that we knew might come up. And we decided that, look, this was something that we had worked through together, something I'd put behind us, and something we wanted to, uh, to keep behind us. But as I've said, it's in our rearview mirror, but it's not far. We still work every day at our house. Right after the press conference, I went to a community forum in the same building mm-hmm. and got a great response now. I mean, you know, it was a weird disconnect that I think that still it hadn't, the tabloids hadn't taken hold yet. The headlines hadn't been written yet. So the the people in that room, I think, hadn't quite had it baked in yet that what, that this was a terrible thing and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit, but the whole thing, you know, the whole thing to some degree is out of body. It's like, it's kind of weird to watch all of it happen. Did you, uh, you decided obviously to continue campaigning and I'm wondering how you go about doing that mentally? How do you compartmentalize this thing that's happening in your personal life and the reactions you're getting from people that might have been I don't know how to, I don't know that there was another option. I was a candidate. People had put a great deal of faith in me. I had a staff of people that were doing a remarkable job. I had events where I was scheduled to go. I had campaign filings that I had made, you know, to, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I and to me the fundamentals hadn't changed. I was asking people from the beginning, the middle, and even then, 
to 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 decide whether I would be a good mayor or not, whether they whether or not they knew embarrassing things about my personal life. Eventually, at some points, though, the the compartmentalization seemed to break down. For instance, uh, you got into a shouting match with a kosher uh, baker over this stuff. Um, oh, customer, yeah, it was a customer. You have a nerf to even oh, yeah. walk around in public. And, and you're, and you're a and perfect you're person? I'm not you're perfect. my judge? But I didn't, my judge? I didn't do what you did. What rabbi taught you that? I didn't do what, what you did. What rabbi taught you that you're my judge? You're fine. You talk Thank to you. God Thank and work you. out your problems, but stay out of the public right. eye. So That's I'm, the I'm difference. not going to stay That's not for you to judge, my friend. Yes. Were th- was that just you uh, being worn down? Yeah, I just was falling apart at that point. I mean, I was just falling apart. I mean, it's just you can't even, you know, I mean, I was just falling apart. Just too much every day. It's just too much. It's very difficult to like your. I mean, it's just we're not now. Admittedly, the guy, he was a racist asshole, and he said something very nasty about my wife, and I snapped. But, but yes, it was a function of uh, of me just kind of being at, at my wits' end. I guess that leads to my next question, which is, what was that the point, or was there another point where you just thought to yourself, I don't need this shit? Actually, that moment, I felt very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that actually had a weird cathartic sense. Yeah. Like I'm just like getting in some guy's face and telling him to go fuck himself. That, that had. You know, I had this bulwark sensibility toward at yeah. some moments at the end where I just felt somewhat like, just let me, you know, let me just say whatever I want to say. You know, it's like I remember there was this um, for like practically daily. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was trying to get me on a show just about daily from the beginning of the campaign, middle of the campaign to the very end. And finally, and I was doing no national press. I just had, a, you know, Elliot Spitzer, when he got back there, he was doing like the Tonight Show and shit like that. And I was like. That's not what – I'm not talking to them. That's not my interest. I'm interested in talking to them in Citizen New York. But I was just like whatever. It was like I tried that strategy. It wasn't working. I was now at 6 or 7, 8 percent in the polls. And I remember just going on with him and just getting in this row with him. Question that. Anthony, I mean it from a psychiatric level. Dude, I don't care dude, about Dude, I don't really need your psychiatric answers. questions. I don't what, care ask about me a question. Do an interview answers. here. Do an interview. You are, being, you are being driven by some kind of demons in some what strange kind of, directions. Hey, and Lawrence, do you want to ask me a question or do you have me on a harangue with a split screen? This can't be good TV for anybody. Like he's psychoanalyzing me on TV and I'm like, what? And like not letting me talk. I like just, and I... And when when I like, why are you doing this, Wiener? It's because it just felt right to punch back for a minute or two. You harangued online. Nobody watches the show. Who do you think's online? You can say whatever you want online if you All want right, to continue buddy. this. It's been it's been it's been great doing a split screen harangue with you, Lawrence. At, at some point, you ever want me to respond to you? You let me know. You know, just not take the crap anymore. And I felt kind of good about it. And but um, but, but to my no, question: Was there a point where you ever thought I don't need this shit? No, I. I I mean, I guess the – I was a – you know, kind of a – the missile had been launched. You know, the thing he was on the way. I was like riding this this thing and it wasn't like, OK, I'm going to hop off here or something. It's going to be <laughs> – it's like, all right, now, on, when the first Tuesday following the first Monday in September after Yuntif, whenever it was, came and the primaries and was I kind of like, God, thank you that that's over there, sure. I mean, I, I I knew I was losing for a while, and it, I was eager for it to get done, and I was I felt myself kind of just falling apart. It was just too much, you know, a lot of pressure. Is there anything you could have done differently to win? Well, l- let me make it as easy as possible for you. There was a five-way race. Three of us had negatives in the 40s, and the other two finished one and two. I mean, that's basically. And I mean, it's just the answer is no. I, I, I now my my. Polster at the time disagrees 
but all the, all the way along, I kind of had, I'm just too smart about this stuff to realize you can't do it. For the same reason, I, when is this going to be airing? When is it going to be available? Depends to how quickly we can edit it. Well, like Donald Trump, if he's the nominee with sixty-five percent negatives, is not going to be your president. Like yeah. I just, too, I just know that that's not the case. I had that problem, and remember something else. It's funny I hadn't thought this right this moment until about how many Trump parallels there are to the race. Also, someone dumped a couple of million dollars of ads reminding people about my scandal back in two thousand eleven. That would have been pretty bad too. You know, basically the headlines were the headlines of this. The scandal was the scandal. It was basically the same thing. So I knew that if someone dumped that kind of opposition on me, on the TVs, it was going to hurt me. Just so. to nail down on that, you're, the parallel to Trump is obviously not disposition or ideology. It's the fact that you had negative ratings, and, and also we we did we did surprisingly well based on a crowded field. Yeah. You know, like, you know, it's basically, I mean, this is the second time his, his race has come up as kind yeah. of instructive. So I, I guess I leave this interview wondering if you think that uh, American politics is a place for people with proverbial warts. If we're maybe not as liberal-minded as we think we are. Well, I don't know how many lessons you learned from my case. I mean, a guy named Weiner in a slow news period who's a bit of a, you know, a, a fighter kind of prick that's got a lot of like, you know, who kind of really was leading with his chin as a, as a personality style and everything else. Pictures involved. I mean, there's just so many things about my case that you can interview 50 people and you're not going to find like – a similar type of case. So I, mean, I, I don't I don't know. I do think that for the for, that we are now are in a period of time that stuff that used to not exist, you know, like I, I answer the question, you know, when someone said, would this have happened? Would you have had this scandal if you were running in the 60s? And I said, well, no, because the Internet wouldn't have existed. And someone wrote the headline that I blame the Internet. I'm just as a matter of fact, that's the case. On the other side, we're seeing in this year's presidential election that these hiccups that might have seemed like killers, like, you know, you tweet a racist thing, maybe four years ago that would have killed a presidential campaign. Now you just, there's another tweet the next day and suddenly everyone's forgetting about it or whatever. So I don't know what lessons you can really take away from my case. What about lessons on the state of the media? I'll leave that for someone else to decide. I I think that there's lots of good things to be said about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people writing and following campaigns. I don't know that that's the problem. And, it, you know, at the end, like the other thing about my case that may not be useful to someone listening to this in five years is I think I was in the midst of the death throes of tabloid newspapers. I'm not sure if you're going to have the influence of the tabloids is waning every single day. And I don't know maybe in five years if they exist. Anymore. So I was like there their their death throes to some degree with all the headline fodder that I provided. So will you run again? Can't imagine I would because I don't see a different – now it really would have to – you know, I basically tested the theory once. <laughs> I can't – I can't see it on – you know, um, I can't see it. Uh, nor is there really any other job I'd want. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that changes. Maybe, you know, my son is four years old now. Maybe I'll – you know, run for PTA president or something like that. Or um, <laughs> I can't really see it. I'm a smart enough political creature to realize the limitations of the thing. I mean, I, 
I tested it about as you know as in a circumstance that I could. And I don't also don't think you get a third bite at the apple. I think people will let you willingly take a second bite and try again. But I don't know if a third really happens. And then the other thing is the jobs are not that good. With the exception of mayor, the jobs are just not that good. You know, the, the, I wouldn't go to Washington again. I mean, I'd rather eat this table than go back to D.C. in the way things are. <laughs> would you, what, would you, what about <laughs> running someone's campaign? Working on a campaign? I don't know. I might. I mean, I'm, I, I, I kibitz a lot. Very, you know, with people who are thinking of running, who are running, and I do so from a good distance, just because you know. I mean, I mean, it's why do you need that shit? You know, like I even friends who say, "Can you write me a check?" I'm like, "Yeah, think pretty hard. <laughs> do you want that? Do you really want two days of stories like you took?" You know, um, so uh, I I could. I mean, I'm good at that stuff. I'm 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 good at that stuff, but I don't. And I, and I would be a better elected official than a lot of these people are. Uh, but I think I'm practical enough to realize it's not going to happen. Why do you think you'd be a better elected official? Because I'm very good at it. Do you think you still got the juice? Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, the one thing about being Anthony Weiner is people take your call. They all want to tell their wife when they get home that they, you know, guess who called me today? You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and also, I know everyone. Like, I kind of know. I mean, I know how to... I mean, I kind of know everyone. I know who to call, and I know what what to say, and I, and I, I, I have a great belief in the in the way that that governance works. Well, so what are you doing these days then? What are you I'm doing? Interviews on podcasts, and you know, waiting. For, is this is this a labor shop? Is this a union shop? I'm going to get a union check for doing an hour and a half of like no sound comment. work. No comment. I don't, I don't, uh, free, free coffee. Though. I'm doing some stuff. I, you know, I do doing some. I'm doing some consulting for for um, startups in the social entrepreneurship space. Doing a little low level political kibitzing. You know, New York One here in New York City and the Daily News and stuff like that. And I'm also you know raising a four year old. So it's that's probably the most important job I'm doing now. Do you have advice for young fathers or fathers of young children? See, here's the thing. I think I about a this a lot. I think about this a lot. And you probably know this from having a five-year-old is that you become a really expert on raising a three-year-old and then they're four. And you're like, all of that. <laughs> I figured it out. I had to get his – how to get him to pick out his own shoes is the way to get him on the train in time right. when he's three. And now it's like four. Now I got to figure out some other thing. Like his new thing is he refuses to get on the four train. Going uptown, he only wants to get on a five. And for those of you who are not from the, they run the same stops in Manhattan. They're just the express. But it can sometimes be the difference just getting to school in time or not. And I just have to figure out a way to make the next express train to be more more enticing to him. Now I'm just learning stuff from him every day, and it's a it's an amazing experience. And I have just just enormous respect for parents who do it. And you know, whom is on the my wife is on the road a lot because she works for Secretary Clinton, and and um, it's a great experience. And I I cannot imagine. You know, you know, someone said to me last night um, that there's no such thing as bad news because, like, everything leads you to a different place that could – I could not imagine going through this period of time in Jordan's life where I was sitting in Washington waiting for the 50th vote on repealing Obamacare or maybe even being at City Hall for 15-hour days and missing out on it. So, like, you know, when people say, oh, my God, you've had such a bad string of luck, I'm not – I, I'm like, you know, got so many amazing blessings and I'm like so lucky in so many ways that um, and, and obviously uh, having a chance to, to learn from four-year-old Jordan is one of them.
That was former Congressman Anthony Weiner on his failed bid to become mayor of New York City in 2013 and, more generally, on what life is really like inside an insane media firestorm. Now, as always, a huge thanks to Christine Canetta for her wonderful editing of this podcast. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or on the Huffington Post, and you should tell everyone about it. Like, literally, everyone, not just your family and friends. We want your neighbors. We want random strangers on the street to be listening to this podcast, too. So, next week... We bring you a special episode, our first live recording, which we did at Georgetown University and with a great guest, too. Former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley in what we believe is his first extensive interview on his run for the presidency this past year. Till then, happy trails. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.